Политик Политик. Авторская программа Кирилла Задова, посвященная текущим мировым проблемам. Бутик Политик. Предвзятый обзор, субъективные комментарии и искренние оценки Кирилла Задова. С понедельника по четверг, с 4 до 5. Бутик Политик. Сказал, как обрезал. Приветствую, друзья, с вами Кирилл Задов, это Бутик Политик. Сегодня 14 июля года 2022. Четверг, последний рабочий день этой недели для вашего покорного услуги в этой программе и... Сегодняшнюю программу посвятим разговору о Ближнем Востоке, естественно. Специальным гостем программы будет профессор Ифраем Инбар, президент Иерусалимского института стратегических исследований, профессор Барландского университета. Это не первый у нас разговор, поэтому, мы, естественно, мы коснемся визита Бадна в регион, в Израиль, после этого в Саудовскую Аравию, перспективы на следующей неделе встречи России, Ирана на высшем уровне и Турции в Тегеране. Поговорим о серьезных ближневосточных проблемах, но я думаю, что всем это будет интересно и полезно услышать мнение профессионала, который занимается вопросами безопасности много-много-много лет. Такой план на сегодня, друзья, вы можете мне писать 3474-600-0877 с вашими комментариями. В следующих уже программах буду отвечать. То же самое касается тех, кто смотрит программу на YouTube в любой точке земного шара, подписывается при этом на канал, аудитория растет. Большое спасибо за доверие и добро пожаловать всем новым подписчикам. Друзья, Там можно комментировать, я тоже там буду отвечать. Вот такой план на сегодня в прямом эфире. 347-460-0877. Это смс-портал прямого эфира. New York Man Philadelphia, Application iHeart, Application Rules, Radio Везде в Нации. Пишите там. Бутик Политик. Сказал, как обрезал. Welcome on board, professor. It's pleasure seeing you. And thank God we're gonna... We have a connection, so we can talk now. I hope that uh, doesn't matter it's over the phone still we can see you perfectly well so through the phone they're gonna hear you so i think it's gonna be just fine uh good afternoon and probably good evening by you already it's late thank you very much for finding time for us uh obviously the first question would be uh about uh, joseph biden the president of the united states visit to israel right now i think israel is completely paralyzed with traffic because of the movement of uh president uh, escort and like uh, cars and security and stuff could you tell me in your personal opinion is that uh, what's the main purpose of visit of that president right now in israel considering he's probably very weak here in america according to ratings that following and the prime minister of israel right now is a caretaker prime minister it's not a permanent government that's right now in place so what's the purpose Uh, before going to Jeddah in order to uh, get oil. That's the main purpose of the trip. Only oil, you're saying, is the main purpose of the trip. Because our press is yes. like concerned with the uh, image here at home because uh, so every Israeli visit of a president, any president, is good for ratings usually because big Israeli lobby and Jewish lobby here in, in, in the United States. And also... Uh, they're saying about something like creating Sunni NATO, NATO integration, Israel into region, uh, talk about Iran and stuff uh, and uh, the, on the first leg. And the second leg, it's like uh, uh, creating an impression that the United States doesn't leave the region. What do you think about that? Well, I think that uh, the point you raised about uh, giving the impression that uh, the United States is not uh, totally pivoting towards China Uh, is correct because uh, the countries in uh, in the Middle East are concerned about the departure of the United States. However, uh, uh, the attempt uh, will be doubtfully uh, successful because uh, 
as you mentioned already, the uh, image of President Biden is uh, of a weak president. And uh, uh, also on the main issues that is confronting the countries in the Middle East, which is Iran, uh, we all know his position. He wants a deal. When uh, Israel, as well as uh, Saudi Arabia, as well as uh, other Gulf countries, uh, believes that uh, concluding a deal with Iran uh, is uh, a disaster. That... uh symbolic non-binding agreement that they signed today with uh, Biden and Lapid about not allowing Iran at any price to have a nuclear weapon. What force does, I mean, what strength that agreement has, in your opinion? I think uh, it's uh, a piece of paper, and uh, you can write everything on a piece of paper. The Americans refuse to commit themselves to uh, define a red line in the nuclear uh, program. They also refused to uh, uh, put a deadline on the negotiations. So uh, basically they continue uh, to try to please uh, the Iranians and uh, eventually they'll probably sign an agreement. And Israel is very concerned about it. When you say this, but uh, they cannot cause he Again, he said many times, and he repeated that, uh, he said that in an interview to Israeli channels before before the trip last week, and he also said that already in Ben-Gurion uh, of his welcoming speech, uh, that they can, first of all, that they're going to use military force as a last resort, but he said that. Usually, it, it, it mantra used to be, all options, all options are on the table. Now, it's a different narrative. It's like we, we, we're going to use military force is a last resort option. It's something different already. And uh, also he said that he's not going to remove Islamic Guard Revolutionary Corps, like uh, the most uh, most dangerous uh, regiment of uh, Iranian troops, or of Iranian, uh, of Iranian military, from the terrorist list. He said that. So that's uh, under no circumstances. And that's probably the biggest stumbling block for Iranians to sign any agreement. Or you think Iranians going to sign agreement regardless just for their oil to be sold freely and easily? Well, first of all, uh, during the trip, President Biden and his spokesman made it quite clear that they consider only the diplomatic option. And uh, uh, they will continue with diplomatic option uh, at this stage. Uh, whatever uh, it's done on the diplomatic uh, course, uh, the Iranians will not agree to an agreement. Uh, they actually, excuse me, they will agree to an agreement because two reasons. One, the first reason is that uh, if uh, they sign an agreement, they will uh, get uh, over $100 billion dollars as a result of the annulment of uh, the, the sanctions, economic sanctions. And second, an agreement will, to some extent, deny Israel legitimacy to strike militarily against Iranians' nuclear uh, in, uh, installations. Uh, I think that the Iranians have a great incentive to go and sign 
And in the meantime, they try to get the best deal possible. They have time. In the meantime, they are progressing on the nuclear path, and uh, they are not being stopped. Our national security advisor, uh, Jack Sullivan, many times already said that at a certain point of time, they crossing the certain criteria that after that crossing that point, it's not going to be feasible and profitable for United States to sign any agreement because uh, that period before, if for example, if they want to leave the agreement, uh, United States would like them to have like at least one year till development of nuclear weapon. But already now it's six months according to most optimistic scenarios. And some people say three months already. So if they're going to continue develop uh, to develop what they, whatever they develop until this point, it's going to be no point for United States to sign an agreement, even. Whatever uh, the uh, National Security Advisor says, he does not specify what is this point at which America will not continue negotiations. Uh-huh. And despite Israel's pressure to define exactly this red line, the Americans refuse to do so. This is exactly the problem. And the Iranians, of course, understand it. Okay. Then, uh, what do you think the best options for Israel right now in this particular situation, knowing that uh, in, in interest of both countries, United States and Iran, is to sign the deal? What Israel should do in this particular point right now, like, after, of course, not when Biden is here, but uh, when Biden leaves region, what are options right now? How it's, how can they uh, speed up the process or can they force United States, uh, frankly, to set that line, to set that red line? Or can they provoke United States or coerce United States to do something that uh, gonna, that gonna, destroy that paradigm that both of them are interested in signing. What Israel can do? Obviously, Israel, Israel uh, cannot uh, force the United States uh, to do uh, anything. Uh, United States is a big power and, uh, United, and Israel is a small nation. Uh, however, Israel should, uh, uh, in my view, uh, try to... Uh, attack the Iranian proxies in order, uh, and the main reason is to limit the damage that will come to Israel in case it attacks the nuclear installations. And the second reason, which is not less important, is to convince the Arab uh, partners that we have, particularly since the Abraham Accords, that we are serious about confronting Iran. If we do not confront Iran, uh, I'm very much afraid that the Abraham Accord will collapse. Then what the number of proxies in the region, of uh, Iranian proxies in the region? Hezbollah, uh, you have pro-Iranian forces in Syria also, or you have Iranians in Syria. You have Houthis. Uh, you have in Iraq, you have uh, certain uh, militias, you have uh, groups. Uh, like PMU and, and and like and like, what? Which proxy should be attacked, in your opinion? I mean, which proxy? It's, it's not a correct, correct question. I'm sorry for that. Uh, what? Uh, which proxy is preferable for Israel to attack? 
I think uh, we have to uh, make sure that uh, the tremendous threat coming now from Lebanon should be paralyzed. So Hezbollah, you're uh, saying? Hezbollah, Hezbollah has over 100,000 missiles. Luckily for us, most of them are not very accurate. But uh, this threat is a serious threat to the Israeli population, and it has to be eliminated. This is also a signal to our Arab partners that we are serious about confronting Iran. So, if that logic going to be applied, then we can see, after the President of the United States is leaving the region, we can see serious conflagration on Israeli north border, especially considering that Syrian direction now is... Uh, stum- there are some obstacles from the side of Russia for us, for, I mean, for Israel to continue doing what they were doing since 2015, right? If, if I understand you correctly. I'm sure that uh, we can still uh, operate relatively freely uh, in Syria against Iranian targets, but the main threat doesn't come from the achievements of Iran in Syria. Uh, They try to build bases there for launching missiles against Israel, but they are not that successful. And the main threat is... Do you think that... uh Invasion in this case, again, third one, is going to be possible, even, other, even probably fourth one, uh, going to be a possible option on this undertaking, because it's kind of, it's scary in a sense that uh, we didn't have success, Israel didn't have clear success in 2006, and considering war of 1982, it's probably the first Israeli war that I saw as a kid, and watching closely, and uh, after that, All 18 years after that, it was not easy for Israelis. And we even, we have seen the prime minister was elected, Ehud Barak, on the promise to take our boys out of Lebanon. So now, do you think that uh, in this fourth invasion, it's going to be more successful because it's, uh, it's, they, they have uh, fortified positions. They have a lot of sympathy to, uh, in, in South Lebanon. And uh, the population is Shia also, and they're supporting Hezbollah. So it's it's twofold question. First, Do you think in Israeli officer corps, like uh, top generals, they have appetite for invasion? And second, how successful can it be, considering previous history of Israeli-Lebanon, Israeli-Hezbollah conflicts? Obviously, we must do better than in the past. And uh, although the past was not so uh, terrible, after in 2006, uh, we created a certain amount of deterrence, and we have quiet, more or less, along the uh, northern border. But definitely, you are correct that Israel uh, must uh, prepare in a a much uh, more systematic way for uh, this type of operation in in Lebanon. Uh, To some extent, uh, our chief of staff is speaking about uh, attaining victory. Um, and uh, this is an encouraging sign. The Israeli forces are training. I'm in no position to uh, assess if uh, 
will be uh, you know uh, more successful in, than in the past uh, I am uh, you know I mean come from the land of prophets but I'm not a prophet and every war is uh, risky of course uh, but this is something we have to do we live in a tough neighborhood and uh, this is what we must do okay that's military side of uh, invasion now let's talk a little about uh, consequences in case it happens uh of civilian infrastructure of the north of people on Golan and people in Haifa uh, in 2006 they were suffering tremendously and uh, shelling from Hezbollah and missiles attack from Hezbollah and probably Hezbollah improved their missiles Uh, and they now reach probably Tel Aviv, they now probably can reach Jerusalem. I don't know about Dimona, I don't know about that, it's deep south, but uh, Gush Dan they can reach, definitely. So what's logistical implications for uh, service of uh, interior? Well, how can they do that logistically? How can they evacuate, like we're talking millions of people? About two, three million pe- of people should be evacuated from north and from center. How it's going? How can it be achieved? And then, Uh, we never had Israel never had that in in, in the past such or such an operation. Um, you are right, but our defense missiles uh, have been improving over time. We have a good record, but uh, to be honest, uh, we all know that our defense missiles are primarily intended to uh, protect our strategic uh, uh, installations, and we cannot. Uh, protect all uh, civilian population. And indeed, this is uh, uh, a scenario in which we will uh, face uh, civilian losses. This is why we should do it fast, we should do it fast, uh, in order to minimize the civilian losses. Uh, and uh, I think that the government has a duty to explain to the population, to the Israeli citizens, the risks of such an operation and uh, also the opportunities why this should be pursued. What government has the position of power to explain that? I mean, not be forced to resign like in the next week or two weeks. You think uh, Yair Lapid government... It's to be... Uh, has to be done constantly. The government, even if it's a caretaker government, has to take care of the country. But that's a political suicide. Because we know that Israelis are not prepared to have losses. Remember when there was a costly liberation that lasted for 34 days? Uh, they were uh, saying that it was a very successful operation in Gaza because we lost only like eight people or nine people, something like that. But uh, if we see the goals of that operation, there were no goals. We did not achieve, Israel did not achieve any of the target except for deterrence, which didn't work for long, because after that there was another shelling from Hamas, and it's around and round, and it's like, a, it's a circle. So it, it happens like every year, almost every year, we have, a, Israel has a confrontation with Hamas, with the missiles here, missiles there. So civilians go into shelters. It's not like that, that threat is still there, and it doesn't go anywhere. So now uh, everybody was saying that, like, listen, let army win. Send troops there and do it like it's supposed to be done, but it's going to be losses. How big? 
experts were saying, and I think you subscribe to that opinion also, it's going to be huge losses. At least a thousand soldiers can die if you're going to clean Gaza completely properly, in a proper way. And no government can do it, because when government do it, uh, they're going to resign afterwards. Like uh, after Yom Kippur War, Golda Meir resigned. I, I, know, I understand that uh, that analogy doesn't, pro it's not a proper analogy, because that was a different kind of war. But still, Israelis are not prepared to have losses. And that's going to be... I'm not sure that, uh, that you are correct. You know, um, I understand that the elite in Israel, political elite, and maybe even the military leadership is uh, somewhat afraid of uh, casualties. But uh, I think that the population is ready for taking casualties if uh, the war achieves its goals. Uh, moreover, Successful wars are popular. But listen, uh, but uh, in Lebanon in 2000, when Barack was running as a for for prime ministership, uh, the main slogan was "I will I will return our boys back." Is didn't population understood in that particular time that our Israeli presence in South Lebanon is a guarantee that whatever is happening right now will never happen? And they were losing six soldiers a month. Am, am I correct? Six something like that, right? Casualties were six soldiers a month in the last year. No, there were less. About 40 people a year. 40, 40 people, people a, year. a year. And still, sentiment was to return as soon as possible. Stop. Evacuate our army. Evacuate the soldiers back. Bring boys back from Lebanon. And you, we see it now, consequences of that decision in year 2000. As the same this consequences of evacuation from Gaza and stuff. So they were not ready for loss of 40 soldiers a year. And now you're saying that they will be, the population will be ready for major military operation with like hundreds and hundreds of soldiers and probably thousands of civilians. Uh, I think that the polls show that uh, this uh, uh, fear is not warranted. The Israelis are ready for larger scale operations in Lebanon, also in the territories, in, uh, in, in the dense area, in order to, uh, to make Israel safe. And uh, this is, uh, we published it on our website. Everybody can see it. Uh, we published uh, serious work on, uh, uh, on the issue of sensitivity to casualties. It's a myth that Israelis are sensitive to questions, to, to casualties. They are sensitive to casualties when the wars are not successful. This is true, by the way, also of the Americans. Sure, sure. I think it's true with every, every single country. But uh, in order for the war to be successful, it's got to be consistent, right? And should be, goals should be clearly defined and there should be no turning back before the goals are achieved. And with Israeli leadership for last, yeah, I would say 15 years, maybe 20 years, we didn't see that attitude. You agree? And this is why I'm trying to change <laughs> <laughs> in my country. And I think that uh, there are uh, ears that are uh, willing to listen, even among the, uh, the definitely professional staff and uh, maybe even politicians. So it looks like to you that there is no possible way for Israel in short perspective, short-term perspective, to avoid military conflict. Uh, 
There's no way. Uh, right. I, uh, there is no way to, to avoid military conflict in order to uh, weaken Iran and uh, uh, eliminate the nuclear threat. And I wrote a piece, I wrote, Natanz goes via Beirut. That's, on one side, I hear whatever, what you're saying, because that's the honest assessment of the situation. On the other hand, I understand, I realize, I just recently visited Israel in March, and I saw that country is, thanks God, booming, it's uh, developing, and it's, uh, it's, I don't think inside, people inside, they are prepared right now for a big, big military conflict. It's, it's a hard thing. And, uh, I understand that everybody in Israel, they are served in the army, they either in the army or the reservist, and they, and Israeli society is militarized, I think, probably most militarized country in the world because of the situation in the region where they are right now. Uh, still, it's, it's hard for me to imagine because I never been witness of that inside, well, inside Israel. When I was in Israel, I never seen the war. But I realize that's probably, that's, uh, it's perspective. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I have that feeling also. But tell me, do you think that uh, when Israel invade, and definitely it's going to happen, I, I think also it's going, to be, it's going to happen soon, do you think that Arabs on in the territories in Yudava Shamron and in Gaza would not be like a fifth column in the in the in the back, like stabbing in the back when Israel is going to do the work on up north? This is definitely a possibility. We've seen it uh, last year in May. Right. Not only uh, the Arabs in uh, Judea and Samaria and in Gaza, also the Arabs within, uh, within Israel. Um, right. And we have to prepare for this contingency. And I think Israel is preparing, you know, increasing the police force. Uh, it's trying to establish a national guard. Uh, we definitely have to take into consideration that there will be uh, elements within the Arab Israeli population or uh, beyond its borders that will uh, try to capitalize on such a action, a military action, Israeli military action, in order to cause trouble. And you think there is a way that Israel can have a conflict on three fronts simultaneously and manage that? We had it before, 67. Then it was even, you know, we had uh, armies against us, and we managed. It's a question of preparing for it, uh, the military, and preparing uh, mentally the population. No, it's nice to say, oh, peace is around us, and uh, we'll live uh, well, and we'll prosper, but we have to be realistic. And sometimes I understand the, I understand the rationale for uh, for delaying a war, but at the same time, if you delay a war, the, it may be more costly uh, at a later stage than now. Yeah, yeah, obviously we see that in Gaza, even we see that in Lebanon right now. So we understand that, right? So what do you think uh, before the break, uh, commercial break? I want to ask you only that thing. What do you think about? Uh, role of uh, Fatah in Yudava Shamron 
in this particular case? What's the scenario going to be of uh, Mahmoud Abbas, for example, current Palestinian leadership? What they going to do in this situation? Will they try to cooperate with Israelis or will they be against? I think that uh, the uh, current leadership is not very much liked by the Palestinians. It is weak. It lacks legitimacy. And uh, we know that Abu Mazen uh, is not a young uh, person. And uh, we'll probably see a succession struggle. Now, particularly when there is a succession struggle, people will be very careful in not cooperating with Israel, because if you cooperate with Israel, you lose popularity among the Palestinians. You think they still have that kind of popularity that they can uh, capitalize upon? Like, they were afraid to lose that already after everything, after since 1993. I mean, they were basically puppet government, and they rightfully, that Arab population of Yudav Shamron were, were always saying that you are puppet, you are puppets of Israelis, that Because you are copyright and your security is copywriting most of the time, except from 2000 to 2004. But most of the time they were working. That was the purpose of creation, Palestinian authorities, I recall correctly, right? In order for Israel. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Palestinian, the Palestinian authority is a source of em employment. There are many people dependent. One million, right, 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 right. So they uh, benefit from the existence of the Palestinian authority. Also, the Palestinian authority is able to secure uh, funds from abroad. And this uh, filters uh, somewhat, uh, you know, to the people. Not all of it. We all know where most of it goes. Right. We're going to make a short commercial break and come right back with uh, focus on Tehran meeting next week, I hope. Thank you very much. Please stay with us and we're going to be back very, very soon. Бутик Политик Сказал, как обрезал Добро пожаловать в «Бутик Политик», с вами Кирилл Задов, у нас на связи профессор Ифраим Инбар, бар, профессор Байландского университета и президент Иерусалимского института стратегической безопасности. Профессор, welcome on board again. Uh, there is a meeting right now, that, um, uh, not right now, next week is going to be a meeting between President of Russia, President of Turkey and President of Iran in Tehran, and going to be bilateral talks, and they're going to be talks on Syria. Uh, what do you think in this particular situation right now that Russia faces? Uh, is Russia going to be more inclined to make deal with Iran? Because before that, Russia was not very happy about Iranian influence in Syria. They were trying to limit it also. Now, because West is not properly communicating to Russia and not even that, uh, they are supplying a lot of armament and weapons to uh, Ukraine making Russia suffer more casualties in the war, making the war more prolonged war. So in this particular case, and not even talking about sanctions and like all pressure that Russia right now faces, don't you think it's going to push Russia further to embrace Iran more and eventually limit Israeli, uh, scale of Israeli operations in Syria? I'm not sure that the Russian calculus has uh, changed vis-a-vis -vis Syria. Um, After all, uh, they don't want uh, their uh, client, Assad, to be dependent upon Iran. And uh, they've used Israel uh, in order to uh, limit uh, the influence of Iran 
in Syria. They also don't want Iran to have greater influence and have greater, a better position than Turkey. So I think they are quite happy with, uh, you know, this type of uh, uh, arrangement in which uh, the three countries are somehow uh, controlling parts of Syria. And uh, it seems that they are not uh, uh, changing their policy vis-a-vis Israel on this issue. Okay, I, got, I understand that. But still, they got to give Iran something for... Uh, cooperating with Russia and uh, in, in more like more actively and uh, I mean if Russia goes east who who's on the east China and Iran nobody else basically so what Russia can give Iranians for for that enhanced cooperation I think uh, the Russians uh, are uh, paying for whatever they buy from Iran, be it uh, uh, drones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Russia is a, is a big country that Iran uh, is afraid of. It <laughs> has been under uh, occupation during World War II. Right, right. They have reason to be afraid of. And, That's true. And uh, they are, uh, of course, competing also with each other over Central Asia. Uh, so it's it's uh, a, a very complicated, uh, you know, relationship. Right. Right. And uh, the Russians, after all, take care of themselves, and uh, the Iranians, as well as the Russians, have a common goal to weaken the United States. That's true. That's true. Uh, and the last question, probably for tonight, are. Uh, It's Idlib Turkish military presence. Uh, don't you think that Iranians and Russians going to press Erdogan to leave Idlib and to regain for Assad in order for Assad to regain total sovereignty over Syrian territory, uh, Turkish troops should leave because now it's not failed state anymore. And basically, from international law point of view, at least. A Turkish military presence uh, in Idlib is not guaranteed. I mean, it's not justified. I'm sorry, that that proper word. And whatever right now is happening, cannot Assad cannot be happy with that. So, what do you think can they give Erdogan uh, for this? If he's going to leave, they're going to give him green light for uh, operation against Kurds on uh, uh, left bank of Ifrat or? All my calculations are nothing, and it's not like that. It's not going to happen, and Erdogan will not leave uh, Idlib. I don't know what uh, Erdogan will do vis-à-vis Idlib. If there will be great uh, military pressure, of course, he'll consider withdrawal, but he has uh, freedom of action. The Americans are interested in a Turkish role in Syria because they, Syria, they see Syria as a Russian protectorate. And the Turks uh, limit uh, the power of the Russians. Uh, also, uh, again, there is a complex relationship with, uh, uh, with Iran on, on the Kurds. The, uh, neither country, nor Turkey, nor uh, neither uh, uh, Iran wants the Kurds to be too strong. And, of course, not the Syrians. 
So uh, what we see uh, basically in the last uh, years, and this is a result of the civil war, some kind of partition of, uh, of, of Syria. Uh, Assad had 60% of Syria. And the rest are sharing it. And uh, um, it's, uh, you know, I don't see there will be a big change. Uh, the uh, Turks are now also weaker than before uh, because uh, economic reasons True. are also isolated in, in the region. And this is why they are getting close to Israel, getting close to the uh, United Arab Emirates. They get money from them. So um, there is a lot of fluidity in the situation, uh, which allows for uh, various uh, initiatives and maneuvers. Local That's right. We have our time, unfortunately, come to an end. Thank you very much, Professor of uh, Barrowland University and President of Jerusalem. No, Secu- no, I am, I, I'm, yeah, I'm no longer at Barilan. I am the president of the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security. That I'm saying also, yeah, because they didn't say it on the website, okay. right, on the Jerusalem Post website. The last time I was checking, I was reading your article in Jerusalem Post. Thank you very much, uh, President of yeah, Jerusalem right. Institute of Strategy and Security, Professor Ephraim Inbar. Uh, we have to continue our conversations next time possible. Next we'll. Time. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate for your time. Thank you. Bye. Бутик Политик. Сказал, как обрезал.